Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. This is the 43rd edition, and I'm your host, Stefan Christophe. Thanks for tuning in. I'm in Montreal, and uh, today on the show, we are very lucky to speak with author and activist Harsha Walia, who recently uh, published a book called Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism. This book really explores a critical take on the existence of borders and how border uh, frameworks enforce um, systemic racism, nationalism, and how that plays out um, in many contexts around the world. In our interview, Harsha talks about the expansion of borders and borders multiplying, thinking about you know U.S. or Canadian policy as creating both internal and external borders. Um, um, the idea of the U.S. Uh, enforcing uh, limits on migration by funding uh, military forces or police forces in Central America to stop migration or the ways that um, within Canada, for example, there are systems that delineate rights based on citizenship, how those are internal borders. Um, Harsha has been working on these issues for many years, and this is a very important book that's come out. Uh, I was really happy to speak with her uh, today about this, um, and um, I'll just go right to our conversation. Uh, thanks to Harsha for joining Free City Radio, and we'll get right to it. I'm joined by Harsha Walia, who has published a second book, um, Critiquing Border Imperialism. This book is called Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism. Um, this book's come out recently um, and addresses so many issues uh, in the news right now. Uh, we're going to get into a bunch of them. Um, and also, I think, uh, provides really important points of systemic analysis on the broad scope of colonialism, uh, systemic racism and border nationalism. Um, so, well, first, Harsha, I'll just say thank you so much for taking the time to to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Um, so, I guess first of all, maybe we'll start with um, sort of a bit of a look at uh, the ways that uh, liberal governments in North America, so liberal meaning Democrat and the Liberal Party here in Canada or Democratic Party in the US uh, are sort often within mainstream media discourse, uh, they're given quite a pass when it comes to, um, you know, their policies around migration, detention, deportation. Um, but, you know, as your work has illustrated and your writing has illustrated, there's, there is um, a link, uh, obviously, between administrations on the ways that borders are hardened and also the sort of state machinery of border enforcement. Um, so I just, first of all, I'm, you know, given everything that was discussed in the last, well, the four years of the Trump administration and, you know, the, the arrival of Biden administration in the US, I'm just wondering why it's important to think critically when we see news reporting that really gives a pass to the policies of such uh, types of quote unquote liberal uh, uh, administrations or governments? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's such an important question, right? Because especially in the Canadian context, 
the liberalism, if you will, of Canada writ large is often juxtaposed um, to the overt conservatism or white supremacy or imperialism um, of the United States. So I think particularly in Canada, Canadian liberalism is, is um, really informed by the very low bar of not being the United States, right? Um, but also I think liberalism and its many forms, whether that's multiculturalism, um, whether that's the kind of idea of being humanitarians, of peacekeeping abroad, um, of you know, reconciliation with indigenous nations, of refugees welcome, all of these kind of tentacles of liberalism in Canadian discourse really just serve to, to mask and serve as a cover um, for ongoing white supremacy, racism, and imperialism. Um, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a really well-honed tool um, to mask these structural violences and also um, presenting itself not as structural violence, but rather as a counter to more right-wing ideas, right? So for example, in relationship to the border, um, when we have right-wing conservatives or Trump, uh, you know, going on about with their overt anti-migrant xenophobia or, you know, build the wall, make, make America great again, all that kind of uh, really overtly vitriolic xenophobia and white supremacy, then liberals get to swoop in and offer these kinds of liberal narratives like multiculturalism, like refugees welcome mm. as a humanitarian counter. Um, so not only does it mask structural violence, but it also kind of presents itself as a solution when in fact they're, they're just two sides of the same coin, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, on that point, I mean, the, the title of your book, Border and Rule, um, and then Global Migration and Capitalism, uh, the Rise of Racist Nationalism. Um, can you talk a bit about um, thinking about uh, the border and sort of the discourses that you're addressing right now and also the policies as actually inherent to colonial capitalism as a system? Uh, often, like, these issues are sort of presented as uh, separated or siloed off from these more sort of uh, possibilities of thinking systemically about how the economic system depends on that sort of violent framework of, of border nationalism. Yeah, it's a really good point um, and a good question, Stefan. And, you know, I know that uh, you've worked a lot on these issues as well. Um, I think when I think about borders and how I think it's important for us to understand borders, it's to think not only about borders as the kind of line on the map, right, that, that demarcates territory, but to think about borders as bordering regimes, as bordering regimes and ordering regimes, it's literally in the word. Um, and here, you know, to think about racial capitalism, to think about racial citizenship, and to think about imperialism. So, you know, imperialism, as we know, is one of the, the main drivers of global displacement today, right? So as you pointed out, Oftentimes when we think about immigration or border controls, we think about them in these very localized, nationalized, siloed ways um, without implicating why people are being displaced, why people are moving, um, why are people moving under incredibly precarious conditions. And of course, imperialism is a key driver of that, right? We continue to live in a world marked by dispossession 
um, marked by, you know, drone warfare, by military occupations, uh, by the deliberate underdevelopment of the so-called or many parts of the so-called global south. So imperialism continues to be uh, a driver and, and a cause of global displacement and migration. But also importantly, which I talk about in Border and Rule, which I don't think we talk about enough, is how increasingly the management of migration is becoming a pillar of imperialism, by which I mean that you know, the frontiers of border militarization are not actually the US-Mexico border or the US-Canada border or Fortress Europe or Australia. Um, the frontiers of border militarization are increasingly countries in the global South, like Mexico, like Guatemala, like Papua New Guinea, like Nairu, like Libya, like Sudan, you know, all countries who are being compelled to militarize their borders um, by other Western high income states, right? So imperialism becomes a way to force other countries to accept border outsourcing, to accept boots on the ground, to accept these, you know, safe third country agreements. And that's, the, that's what we continue to see, right? Around the world, the kind of um, deathscape and the front line of border violence is, for example, these deals that, oh, that Biden has made with Mexico and with Guatemala and with Honduras and El Salvador, paying those countries to enforce American borders. Or, you know, Australia paying Papua New Guinea and Nairu to build offshore detention centers in those countries. And so it's imperialism, the threat of trade war, um, the kind of immigration diplomacy of trade and aid agreements that means that increasingly borders are multiplying, like they literally exist all across the planet, not just in the kind of fortress North Americas, if you will, um, but are multiplying all around the world. And I think, you know, that is something critical that we need to think about. And in terms of capitalism, of course, capitalism requires cheapened labor. Um, and the border acts uh, to segment labor by creating categories of undocumented and migrant labors, right? So the, the very act of being a non-citizen worker that the border creates makes migrant workers and undocumented workers susceptible and prone to wage exploitation. It's basically a new era of indentureship, um, which Canada has perfected, right? Canada has perfected the model of temporary foreign workers, um, workers who work on the farms, who work as domestic workers, who work in construction, who when their labor is no longer needed, they are deported and it is very hard for them to organize. They do do so despite immense conditions, um, but it is very hard to do so because any, um, any threat of organizing, any kind of, um, any kind of organizing against one's bosses can lead to retaliation that is immense, not only termination, but potential deportation and blacklisting. So, you know, here we also see racial capitalism as, as critical um, to, to bordering regimes and the ways in which bordering regimes uphold racial capitalism by ensuring a cheapened pool of, of labor. Um, thanks for sharing these reflections. You brought up the idea of borders multiplying and sort of this conceptual, but also real policy, um, economic, political, military, of borders as uh, enforcement, as of borders as imperialism. Can we, uh, maybe if possible, can you, can you maybe just talk a bit about that concept a bit, the idea of borders multiplying, the idea of borders not necessarily just being geographical, but just 
like, um, yeah, just, just maybe for people to sort of wrap their heads around that idea a bit more. Yeah. Um, you know, the idea of borders multiplying is the idea that borders, you know, don't just exist at the territory of the border, um, that borders can exist within the nation state and also can exist outside the nation state. So, for example, within the nation state, the struggles of migrants and refugees doesn't just end at the border, if you will. Right. So um, all around the world, migrants and refugees and undocumented people, you know, whatever categories exist in different nation states for how non-citizens are marked, um, there are real struggles. So, you know, the police, for example, can pick you up um, and then you're not only facing policing and you're not only facing Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. criminal punishment system, but you're also facing, you know, what we call double or triple punishment, where then you are, Mm -hmm. um, you can be deported. And even our social services, the kind of care services that we praise and laud, like our healthcare system or our childcare system, um, these systems that are care-based public services or that we think are care-based public services mm-hmm. can mutate into effectively becoming border guards, right? So you go to access healthcare in a hospital. And if it turns out that it is found out that you are undocumented, your status can be reported to CBSA. Um, same in schools, right? So the kind of... Um, you know, again, the kind of front line of um, border enforcement is not just at the border itself. It's in everyday life where there's the, a, a daily surveillance, um, even when one has is no longer at the site of the border. Right. So all of mm. these different institutions can turn and mutate effectively into doing the work of bordering and bordering enforcement. Mm-hmm. And again, here that can be everything from law enforcement, like, you know, a police but also other institutions um, like hospitals. And so Mm -hmm. this is, you know, one of the ways in which bordering regimes multiply, right? Which is why that kind of everyday fear of living without status doesn't end when one crosses the border. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And in terms of the border multiplying kind of externally, it, it is increasingly this practice of countries to outsource border enforcement. Um, So, for example, in the Mediterranean, the world's deadliest border, you know, the struggle doesn't start when migrants and refugees arrive at the border. It actually starts well before that, uh, you know, where increasingly drone surveillance and even NATO warships actually patrol um, the Mediterranean, the agency, right? Like all of these areas are actively under surveillance well before the territorial boundary of the European Union, for example. Um, And increasingly border outsourcing means that interdiction, interdiction is literally the practice of capturing and preventing people from moving. Um, Interdiction is the practice of, you know, using ground surveillance, boots on the ground, army officials, border enforcement, just a whole array of, um, you know, increasingly technological surveillance, artificial intelligence, using what's called quote unquote smart borders to literally outsource the border to different countries so that people cannot make it to the border at the U S Mexico border. um, You know, even before migrants and refugees arrive at the U S Mexico border, we are increasingly seeing news stories of them being intercepted and blocked and blockaded by Mexican authorities, by Mexican officials, uh, increasingly in Guatemala as well. And, 
you know, when we hear these news stories, we often think of this as like, oh, this is happening over there. This is happening in Mexico. This is not a, a problem, say, for the United States. But it is because it is the U.S. that is paying Mexican authorities to increasingly um, criminalize migrants and refugees so that they cannot even make it to the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm-hmm. Um, so this multiplying of borders, you know, both within the border, if you will, and well beyond the border, the externalization and internalization of the border um, means that literally borders exist everywhere, um, that people are on the run constantly. People are in fear constantly. Um, and, you know, just going back to the, the Mediterranean, you know, it is now the, the death rates um, are, are twice as high, according to a researcher, Reese Jones, are twice as high for migrants and refugees who are crossing in the Sahel region of Africa because the EU has externalized its border from beyond the EU, past the Mediterranean, into the Sahel region, into Libya, into Sudan, um, into you know various parts even of the Horn of Africa. Um, that means that you know increasingly Africans are literally dying in the desert um, at double the rate of what we even know to be in the Mediterranean, which is already the world's deadliest border. So we're seeing mm-hmm. uh, newer deathscapes, if you will, developing as a result of the border being outsourced and multiplying. So, um, you know, one chant that has been at protests for years is no borders, no nations stop the deportations. Can you talk a bit about why it's important for us to um, think about and hold on to and articulate the no border position um, in relation to what you're talking about? Because, I mean, you know, in, in the sort of current contemporary context of, you know, woke culture, as it were, you know, within uh, liberal media, we do see the addressing of some very, very um, central, important struggles um, you know, for example, struggles against systemic racism or legacies of colonialism in regards to indigenous people um, on Turtle Island. Um, what, how are these issues connected to thinking critically about the border and also just the importance of going beyond that sort of level of discourse that we have seen translated into the mainstream, but we haven't seen that sort of next step of thinking deconstructing you know are well the enforced ideas of of border frameworks yeah i think that um in many ways the the politics around a no border politics um is is actually is growing um and of course here i would say you know in my observation i think heavily influenced of course, by Black-led abolitionist movements, um, you know, so that there is a a seamless connection between a no police, no prisons, and a no border politics, because these are all carceral regimes intended to control and contain people. Um, They operate differently, of course, but they have the same underlying logic, um, really, of, you know, anti-Black and anti-Indigenous genocide in, in the Americas. Um, but of course, globally as well, and really as systems of containment and systems of apartheid, right, of, of segregation, of death. Um, and so in that way, I think there is a growing analysis of the synergy and the ways in which these institutions and these systems are, are mutually constitutive of each other. 
And for me, I think a no border politics is is important, you know, and it's different than an open border one because, you know, an open border politics is continues to maintain the world as it is, right? Like an open border politics is is the liberal response to, oh my God, what's going to happen if we open the border? Everyone's going to rush and come over here. And the underlying assumption of everyone's going to rush and come over here is the underlying assumption that the world is going to be as it is, right? Which is that there continues to be mm-hmm, a global mm-hmm, north mm-hmm, and a global mm-hmm, south, right? Mm-hmm, that there mm-hmm. even is these geographies where some mm-hmm. people, where we accept the logic that certain places and certain people will continue to be exploited. Um, but for me, a no border politics is really a rewriting of the world. Um, and, you know, I, I conclude border and rule in, you know, thinking about um, no border politics as one of, of world making and homemaking. And, you know, in, if we think about that, then, it's, you know, to have a politics of no border is to completely change the world. It is to no longer accept that there is, you know, high income and low income countries or people, that there is no longer a system of global apartheid um, based on citizenship, race, gender, sexuality, and more, that there is not a system of, you know, capitalist exploitation of free trade agreements, of drone warfare, of imperialism, right? That we are thinking in a radical way of new worlds um, that are based in radical uh, equality and radical humanity for all people and for non-living things or, you know, for non-human living things. And so a no border politics is, is, is only possible Mm -hmm. if we remake Mm -hmm. the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we don't have the same kind of border panic because the assumption of the border panic and brain drain and everyone rushing here still assumes that there is a, a need to to move that is based in forced displacement, whereas a no border politics is is saying that people should not be forcibly displaced, that we cannot continue to live in a world where people are being forcibly dispossessed, displaced, exploited, and people also have the freedom to move, that those are two necessary corollaries. So we need to live in a world where no one is forcibly moved from their homes, removed from their homes, where people have a right to remain in their homes. And people have the freedom to move. So that to me is a no border politics, which is, I think, consistent with the, you know, the revolutionary politics that we're seeing all around the world, right, where people are saying no to capitalism, people are saying no to global vaccine apartheid, you know, we're living this in real time, right? What's a, if we're, we're living in a time of global vaccine apartheid, and then we overlay that with vaccine passports, that's, you know, literally a, a death sentence for the majority of the world. Um, and so a no border politics would would not accept vaccine passports or global vaccine apartheid, for example. Harsha Walia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak today. Thank you so much for having me. That was a conversation with author and activist Harsha Walia uh, here on Free City Radio podcast. Uh, We share a new episode every Tuesday. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, Harsha recently published a book called Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capitalism, and the Rise of Racist Nationalism. Look it up. Um, Thank you again to Harsha for being here on the show. Uh, It is Tuesday, the 25th of May. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks for being with us. Uh, If you like what you heard on the show today, um, please subscribe to our podcast. You can do so. Just look up Free City Radio. Uh, Our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. Also, uh, this is a weekly community radio show on CKUT 90.3 FM. Um, You can find us there. 
um, in the city of Montreal, um, ckut.ca. Um, and thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please do uh, let people know about the podcast. And thank you again to Harsha for being on the show. Um, we'll be back next Tuesday with another edition. And um, to go out, I'm going to share a piece of music uh, by Nicholas Jarre. This is a track called No, and um, I'll see you next Tuesday.